0: to uh, Genesis chapter 48. We'll be looking at that whole chapter plus a little bit of uh, 47. I've uh, titled this sermon A Moment of Clarity. A Moment of Clarity is often described as a sudden or deep acceptance of some truth that has previously been unseen, a sudden realization. Many addicts say that they experience this when they realize that the drugs or the alcohol that are destroying their life and family is, is really not as important as the things that it's destroying. It's a moment when the penny drops and they see how their excuses are worthless compared to the relationships they are destroying. They have a moment when they see what's really important, what's really true, what's really essential in their lives. And for many, that's the beginning of their journey of sobriety. But these moments of clarity are not just relegated to addicts. In a way, coming to faith in Christ, you have to have a moment of clarity, don't you? there is that moment when the penny drops that the gospel that you've been hearing about makes sense, right? That Jesus is who he says he is and did what he said he did. That you are a sinner that is in desperate need of a savior. That penny drops, doesn't it? That you cannot save yourself. That Jesus actually did come and live the perfect life that you can never live and he died the substitutionary death in your place taking the penalty that you deserve that penny drops doesn't it and of course the moment of clarity when for some inexplicable almost reason you believe that Jesus rose from the dead he's alive and then if you believe that, you will be saved. That moment of clarity when the gospel makes sense. Have you experienced that moment of clarity? That the gospel is the most important thing in your life. In our text this morning, Jacob is experiencing a moment of clarity. And he wants to share the most important thing in his life. Look with me at verse 29 in chapter 47. God's word says, When the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, Now if I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt. But let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. And he answered, I will do as you have said. And he said to me, Swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Joseph, and Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And he said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. And I will make you into a company of people. And will give you this land to your offspring and to you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of your brothers in their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Paddan, to my sorrow Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way. When there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, They are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near to him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim on his right hand toward Israel's left hand and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand. And he brought them near to him. And Israel stretched out his hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands. For Manasseh was firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, God, before whom all my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long, To this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them, let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw his father had laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, and he took his father's hand and moved it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, His younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God be with you, and will bring you again into the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given you, rather than your brothers, one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with sword and with bow. Father God, I ask you to speak to your people through your word. Help me to exegete it well. In Jesus' name, amen. So chapter... 47.28, where we started all the way to the end of chapter 49, is actually one scene. We're going to deal with it in two sermons, but it's actually one scene. It is the account of Jacob's last words to his son, to his family. If you look at the end of chapter 49, the last verse, you see there that it says, when Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into bed and breathed his last and was gathered together. his people Jacob dies and death has a way of bringing clarity doesn't it the end of your life brings clarity to what's really important Ian Duguid in in his commentary wrote dying often strips away the pretense and hypocrisy and lays bare the truth about a person's soul isn't that true in other words, death has a way of clarifying what's really bedrock important. Think about it a minute, a moment. If you were to go to the doctor this week and the doctor comes out to you with a folder in his hand and says, I can't help you. You have stage four cancer. You have a couple weeks to live. How would that change your life? Would it change your life? It would bring almost instant clarity as to what is really important in your life, wouldn't it? What would become clear that isn't so clear now? What worries would would instantly melt away? Because they're really not that important what things on the back burner would all all of a sudden become front burner for you what is it that looms large in your life right now that would instantly shrink away is it your retirement savings is it your worry over your checking account is it the next promotion or getting a raise not to say that those aren't important but they're in the face of death they become very back burner don't they or what about your health the priority of staying fit and eating right that's important but when you get a prognosis that there's weeks to live making sure you having your jogging scheduled down pat for the next week just doesn't seem to take the priority Does it? Or how about your precious reputation? How we guard it and build it and make sure not to say anything or do anything that will hurt it. When I was down in D.C. a couple years ago, I had some time and I... I was walking around D.C. and there are scores and scores and scores of statues of people that I have no idea who they are. And it's not just because of my ignorance. These people in their day were shakers and movers. They had huge reputations. They had power. They had prestige. And I don't even know who Mark Hatfield is. Forgotten. Death teaches us that our reputation that we think is so critical. This melts away, doesn't it? I've got three weeks to live, guys. Isaiah 40 comes into sharp focus when it says, like the grass that withers and fades away is a man's reputation. Death is the great clarifier between front and back burner issues. What's ultimate and what's ultimately white noise in our life. What's really important and what's not. And Jacob is dying. And what comes forward in these two chapters is what's really important. He wants his grandchildren to know what's really important. And what it is telegraphing us in these two chapters is faith in God is really important. That's what these two chapters are all about. Interestingly, if you flip ahead to Hebrews 11, the only mention of Jacob in chapter 11, verse 21, is of this chapter. Of all the things that that God could have inspired in Jacob's life for us to, to think this is a faithful act, it's chapter 48. It says, by faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of his Joseph's sons and worshiped as he leaned on the top of his staff. In other words, I think what scripture is telling us here is look at chapter 48. This is a spiritual chapter. There's not some Semitic tradition going on here. There's something of faith, of spiritual significance that's going on here. He's saying, first of all, that being part of God's family is critical. The family of God is critical. In, chapter, in verse 3 and 4, if you want to flip back there, you'll notice that the covenant promise that we've been hearing about in the last 47 chapters is repeated once again, isn't it? God met him and appeared to him at Luz, which is Bethlehem, I mean, which is uh, Bethel and blessed him and said to him behold i'll make you fruitful and multiply you and make you a company of people and give you the land this land to your offspring after you as an everlasting possession here once again is the covenantal promise of people in place people in place of family and place of family and a future right they're not in the land right now this is the same promise that stretches back 230 years to his great-grandfather, uh, to his grandfather Abraham, right? In chapter 12. If you remember that, leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to the land I will show you and I will make you into a great nation. We hear it right there. People and Future a new people, a new household, a new family. In other words, Abraham, leave your father's household. I'm going to give you a new household, a new family. Now standing before Jacob are two half-Egyptian grandchildren, Manasseh and Ephraim. Joseph, through Joseph's Egyptian wife, Asenath, and Jacob brings them into God's family. Did you notice what he said in verse 5? He's very pointed about it. Now then, your two sons born to you in Egypt before I came to you here will be reckoned as mine. Ephraim and Manasseh will be mine. Just as Reuben and Simeon are mine. Jacob is declaring them part of the family. Jacob is making them equal with his own flesh and blood. Jacob is adopting them into God's family. That's what's happening here. Most scholars agree that verses 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12, those five verses that follow this, are actually a formal adoption ceremony. If you look at the wording there, it says in verse 8, when Joseph saw his sons, he said, who are these? He's not meeting them for the first time. This is formal ceremonial language. It's like it's like in a in a marriage when when the bride comes up and the, the minister says, Who gives this woman? It's not like he doesn't know. We're going through the motions. There's a ceremony here that's going on. Joseph presents them and bows down. The formal process of adoption is complete. Manasseh and Ephraim are now declared part of God's family. They're declared part of God's family. That's exactly what happens when we come to Christ, isn't it? When we trust the gospel that I just shared with you a moment ago, we are justified. That's what that theological word means. You're justified. You are declared part of the family now. You are declared sinless. Like Jacob declaring Manasseh and Ephraim, they are mine. God says in 1 Corinthians 6.18, I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord God Almighty. He's declaring you part of the family. Love how he says it in 1 John 3, how great the love of the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And in case we don't get it, it goes on and says... And that is what we are. Don't you love that? So through the act of justification, we are legally declared God's sons, but by adoption, we become part of the family. That's what that wonderful doctrine of adoption tells us and and teaches us and 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 gives us. Ephesians one five says, in love, God predestined us to be adopted as his sons. Beautiful. Romans 8.15 says, For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received a spirit of sonship. Beautiful adoption language. And by him we cry, Abba, Father, Dad. It's an intimate term. Adoption is how we come into God's family. Adoption explains our relationship with him. So much we could say about adoption. You could have a couple sermons full of what it means to be adopted by God, how comforting it is, how, how hopefully, how, how it brings hope to your life, how changed we are because of it. But I, I just want to focus in on one aspect of our adoption, and that is the security that it brings in our life. That's what our reading in Galatians 4 is really telling us, isn't it? When the time had fully come, God had sent his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might be called the sons of God. Just like Manasseh and Ephraim became full part of uh, a full part of God's family with full rights right then, right there, We become sons of God. We become co-heirs with Christ, it even says, in God's Word. Tim Keller wrote, A minute you become a Christian, you have an intimate relationship. You have unconditional relationship. You become wealthy, because everything that Jesus Christ has accomplished is transferred to you. You become beautiful and spiritually rich in Him. He goes on to tell a story about a woman who came from a, a Middle Eastern culture. And, and he learned from her what this son language really means. He goes on to say, some people put off, are put off by Paul's language of adoption because it is gender insensitive. Sons of God, sons of God. So much so that, that the new NIV has begun to put in sons and daughters. Have you noticed that? 2011 edition. The elders felt that we shouldn't go that way. That's why we're reading from the ESV right now. Because sons has a specific meaning to it, a weight to it, that that we're taking away from. Keller goes on and says, they argue, wouldn't it be better to say that we become sons and daughters of God? He says, that would miss the whole point. Some time ago, a woman helped me understand this. She was raised in a non-Western family in a very traditional culture. There was only one son in the family, and it was understood in her culture that he would receive most of the family's provision and most of the honor. In essence, they said, he's the son, you're just a girl. And that's the way it was. One day, he says, she was studying a passage on adoption in Paul's writings, and she suddenly realized that the apostle was making a revolutionary claim. Paul lived in a traditional culture just like she did. He was living in a place where daughters were second-class citizens. When Paul said, out of his own traditional culture, that we are all sons in Christ, he was saying there are no second-class citizens in Christ. When you give your life to Christ, you become a Christian. You receive all the benefits a son enjoys in the traditional culture. He says, as a white male, I've never been excluded like that. As a result, I didn't see the sweetness of this, this welcome. I didn't recognize all the beauty of God's subversive and revolutionary promises that raises us to the highest honor by adopting us as sons. Our adoption means we are loved by Christ. We are honored like He is. Every one of us. Your circumstances cannot hinder or threaten that promise. Paul is promising you better life, not, not promising you better life circumstances. He is promising you a far better life. He's not promising you a life of greatness, a life of joy, a life he is promising you a life of joy, a life of humility. He's promising you a life of nobility. He's promising you in adoption a life that goes on forever. And that's what death brings into crystal clear clarity for Jacob. He wants his grandchildren to know this. That's what Jacob wants his grandchildren to know. That's what's really important when it comes down to it at the end of his life. He wants his grandchildren to know that there is eternal life. But he also wants them to know something else that is equally critical. That entrance into this family is by grace alone. And that's what verses 13 through 20 is all about. Salvation by grace alone. Ephraim and Manasseh come before Jacob to be blessed. And if you notice, the word takes a lot of specificity and time to show how these two sons are coming before Jacob. Did you notice that? Joseph brings these two boys to this blind father in a very prescribed way. If you look at, chap- at verse 13, you see it right there. Joseph took both of them Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand and brought them near him. So Joseph wanted his blind father to bless the right person. Manasseh is the oldest, he gets the right hand of blessing. Ephraim's the younger, he gets the left hand of blessing. The right hand of blessing in the Semitic culture was the blessing of progenitor. It was this person gets the honor, the privilege. This person is responsible for the family and the next generation. The eldest was always given more. The eldest always got the blessing. The eldest expected the blessing. To have the right hand of blessing was in a way of speaking, earned because you were born first. So Joseph directs Manasseh to Jacob's right hand. But verse 14 tells us what? That Jacob crossed his hands, didn't he? It's an interesting image when you think of it. Very intentional bringing up and Jacob reaches out and you can see him just doing this. And it really displeases Joseph. It's not shown there in the English translation, but in the Hebrew in verse 17, he is ticked off. And there, there's uh, the Hebrew there talks about him taking a firm grip on his father's hand and bringing it back over. So this, this isn't something of you know, respectful, well, Dad, you should just... No, he was wrenching his hand over. There was frustration and exasperation there in the Hebrew. But Jacob says, I know, I know, I know what I'm doing. He says it twice, right? I know, I know what I'm doing. He knows what he wants to teach here, and that is what God has been trying to teach and embed in this family from the very beginning. In fact, to embed in, in the Christian culture from the very beginning, that you cannot enter God's family in any other way than by grace alone. It's not deserved, it's not earned, it's not expected. Manasseh, Joseph, Ephraim, all expected the blessing to go to Manasseh. They all knew it. This was, this was how it was going to be done. That's the Semitic tradition. But Jacob crossed his arms. And that's what God has been teaching us from the beginning of Genesis, hasn't it? There's nothing a person can expect from God where salvation is concerned. Think about it. It's not the firstborn Cain, but Abel. It's not the firstborn Ishmael, but Isaac. It's not the firstborn Esau, but Jacob. As we'll see next week, it's not the firstborn Reuben, but the fourthborn Judah. And that's what we see here. Jacob was expecting. Jacob knew what he was doing when he crossed his hands. It's not going to be Manasseh. It's unexpected blessing on Ephraim. That's what the crossed arms teaches us. God's blessing is unexpected. It is given. It's not earned. God's blessing is by grace alone. Entrance into God's family is by grace alone. That's what Paul was teaching the Ephesians when he wrote to them and said, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It's a gift from God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. We love to take credit for our salvation, don't we? When I say, you had absolutely nothing to do with your salvation. How's that sit with you? Let me say it again. You had absolutely nothing to do with your salvation. Really? How's that sit with you? One might say, hold on, hold on. But roll the tape back. I made a decision for Christ. Really? Did you did you just hear the scripture I wrote I read? It's impossible for you to come to Christ unless the Father draws you. John six forty four. Hold it! hold it! I figured out the gospel. I, I thought about it, and I prayed about it, and I thought about it, and, and the gospel started to make sense to me. Really? Because in 1 Corinthians 1.14, it says that unless you have the Spirit within you, you cannot discern the spiritual things. The gospel will not make sense to you until God acts first. Hold it, hold it. I found enough faith to put in God. I, I, I have enough faith. Really? Because Ephesians 2 says faith is, is something that's given to you by God. The faith, any faith that you have is, is a gift from God. So that the penny will drop. But Someone might say, I'm a pretty good person. In other words, God looked down and saw something in me that was worth saving. I'm a pretty good person. Have you heard that before from people? Have you heard that from your own heart? I do. That's what Joseph and Manasseh were expecting that was the, that was what they were thinking in their heart i expect to get this blessing to those who expect to get God's blessing paul writes to the corinthians brothers this is to us think of what you were when you were called Not many of you were wise from human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world to shame the despised things. The things that are not to nullify the things that are. Here's the Bible truth. You were nothing before you came to Christ. There's nothing in you or in me that God sees and recognizes and says, Ah! There's nothing in you and in me that causes God to place his hand of blessing on us. Nothing. We're not smarter. We're not more intuitive. We're not more spiritually sensitive. We didn't, didn't figure the gospel out and embrace it. We cannot get into God's family other than by sheer grace. No matter who you are, you cannot become a family member unless God chooses you. Quite unexpectedly, our reaction should actually be like that of Joseph. Shock. Why me? should be like Ephraim. Why me? That is the right reaction to becoming a child of God. Why me? It's supposed to be that person over there has much more to offer than I do. That person right there is a lot smarter than me. That person right there was born into a better socioeconomic class than I am. That's the right reaction. The final lesson Jacob wants to pass on is a hope for the future. And that's what we learn in the last two verses of our text today. You'll notice that Jacob gives Joseph a piece of Canaan. Kind of an arbitrary piece of Canaan. It's an interesting gift, isn't it? Here's here's a mountain slope for you. It's curious that Canaan plays such a large role in the patriar- patriarch's life, isn't it? I mean, that's a theme that has been running throughout Genesis. This land promise. It's the, pa- the promise passed down through generations. Abraham To Abraham, God said, go to the land I will show you. To Isaac, he said, I will give you this land. To Jacob, he said at Bethel, the land on which you lie, I will give you. Why is Canaan so critical? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Why is it so critical? So critical that that Jacob starts out saying, Jacob... Swear to me that you will not bury me here. Take me back. Put your hand under my, under my thigh. That was a very, very solemn way to, uh, informal way to cement an oath. Swear to me. And then at the end, in, in chapter 49, he makes all the brothers, he commands them, do not bury me here in Egypt. Take me back. Why does the promise of land occupy such a prominent place, not only in, in Jacob's mind, but throughout the history of Israel? The patriarchs passed it down. Israel wandered 40 years to get into it. Joshua spent the better part of his life trying to conquer it. The judges and kings spent all their time trying to protect it. The exiles look forward to returning to it. I would say because it doesn't stand for that particular plot of land at all. It stands for something far greater. Far more consequential in our lives. What Jacob is teaching them is that the land there represents safety and security and refuge It symbolizes a place to look forward to from their restless wanderings. The promised land represents a final rest. A final rest. And I think that 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 starts clearing things up. Because then when you go to the New Testament, to Hebrews 4, and it starts talking about this final rest, it says, For if Joshua had given them rest, meaning if Joshua had actually conquered the promised land, which he did, if if he actually accomplished the promise, goes on to say, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Hebrews 4, verses 9 and 10. See, the promise of land was never about Canaan. It was always to point to a greater security, a greater refuge, a greater home, a greater rest, And it speaks of heaven. That's what this is all about. The greatest hope of the future. Now imagine for a second, two women, the same age, same socioeconomic status, same educational level, same temperament. And you hire both of them. And you say, you're a part of an assembly line. You're going to put part A into slot B over and over again. Every day, okay? And you're going to do it over and over again for eight hours a day. You put them in identical rooms with identical lighting, temperature, and ventilation. You give them the same number of breaks each day. It's very boring work. But you tell the first woman that at the end of a year, I will pay you $30,000. And then you take the second woman and you put her in another room and you tell her at the end of a year, I will give you $30 million. And then you set them out working. After a couple weeks, the first woman will start saying, this is the most tedious work I've ever done. It's driving me crazy. I'm thinking about quitting. And the second woman will turn to the first woman and say, I love this job. This is the best job I've ever had. And she whistles while she works. What's going on? Two human beings, same experience, same circumstances, radically different view of things. What's the difference? It's the expectation of the future, isn't it? Changes everything. Radically changes everything. And that's exactly what the hope of heaven does or should do for every believing Christian. It should radically change your life. Are you sitting here today and you're going, you know, life is is, is kinda tedious. You know, in this life it's the same thing almost every day. This is pretty boring. If you're sitting here as a Christian, you don't have a full grasp of what is being held out to you, your future. If you're sitting here and you don't know Christ, you can have that. You can have this whistle while you work, radically changed attitude towards your life. When you have that future ahead of you, it gives you purpose and meaning and value and drive energizes your life. If you're a Christian, at the end of your life, you will enter into the promised land where it's a place where there's no more wandering, where there's no more worry or restlessness, where there's no more terror and trepidation, where there's no more pain or broken relationships or angst. What you enter into is what Hebrews 4 is talking about, your final Sabbath rest. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. Spirit, use your word to change us, Lord. Change our hearts. Circumcise them. In Jesus' name, amen.